Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, July 20th, 2012. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaber. And we are here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, mobile web debugging tools, the moral conflict of using HTML tables for layout, and development principles versus client demands. Also this week, the introduction of the Niche Podcast drinking game. Editor's note, the audio is absolutely atrocious this week, so please proceed at your own risk. We'll see if we can fix it next week. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello? Hello. How's it going? Uh, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah, it's been one of those days. Yeah. Well, I've been... I've been up all night the last two nights trying to fix uh, a bug on that uh, big project, and I think, fingers crossed, I just fixed it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, hopefully. Works on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure it works everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, but, yeah, I had a couple of things, uh, just diving right in, I had a couple of things that uh, were sort of on my radar that I thought might be interesting to talk about. Um, did you have, uh, anything for this? I, I don't have a whole lot. No. I mean, I, I've mostly just been, you know, just hammering away at, at existing projects and getting some, some API code out there, but nothing really spectacular to talk about. Mm. Other than, you know, I, I got my Nexus seven yesterday. That's exciting. But... Oh, that's right. <laughs> I saw that on, on Twitter. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I love it. Really? Yeah, I think I, I actually think I like it better than my iPad. Wow. Yeah. Why is that? So it's uh I mean it's seven inch screen. Yeah. And jelly yeah. bean. Seven inch screen and jelly bean. Jelly bean to me fixes a lot of little UI issues that kept Android from feeling like a really polished interface. Hmm. Yep. It's it's just it's it's very slick. I like it a lot. And the I really like the seven inch form factor. I, at first, I won. You know, kind of worried that I wouldn't like it. That I think find it too small. Right. But I think I like it better for for reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is which is a large part of what I use a tablet for. And also in portrait mode, the the keyboard is just like the perfect size for um like thumb typing. Yeah. I mean it's it's not not too small like it is on the phone and and not too. You know, to spread out to to really thumb type well, like it is on the ten inch tablet. So it's it, yeah, it feels very comfortable to type on it. Yeah, I totally agree about the keyboard, especially the. Uh, I mean, the iPad's obviously really sweet, but uh, it's it's. I mean, I it's kind of impractical to take around with you unless you have a bag. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's like far from pocket size, that's for sure. But it's it's also like really difficult to use while you're standing in comparison to like a phone, you can't use it with one hand. Right. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of, it sounds ridiculous to say, but it seems a little unwieldy in enough situations that I see it as just like, uh, like around the house type of thing. Yeah. Like lounging around and, you know, keep it on the coffee table in the living room. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. I found this, found this much easier to use one handed. Mm hmm. Yeah. The iPad gets heavy. Yeah. So, you know, it's and I've got I've got a couple. I think the uh, Kindle Fire is the same size. Yeah. As the Galaxy Seven is that what it is? Galaxy Seven, right? Nexus Nexus, Nexus 7. Seven, yeah. Right. And uh, 
I mean, I like the I like the Kindle Fire a lot. I don't use it that much, mm -hmm. um, mostly just for testing. But uh, I don't know. I, I think there's definitely space for that. I, I I'm sure that there's going to be like a continuum of uh, screen sizes for all all sorts of use cases. Yeah. But I've got Jelly Bean on my um, phone. I have an Android phone with Jelly Bean on it, and I'm kind of I was kind of like, meh, you know, it's nicer. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing it on a tablet because I feel yeah, like I think know, I think it really really shines on a tablet. The the improvements. Yeah, because on the phone it's all just jammed in there. It's kind of like it's different, but it's not that different. It doesn't yeah. really have the room to stretch out, sort of. Yeah. So very yeah, I exciting. think the. I think the the ten inch, ten point one inch size of the iPad certainly was a lot better for me back when I was having more problems with my eyesight. Mm. You know, just just because the larger screen. So, you know, I I I guess, I guess I would say this probably isn't as as ex accessibility friendly as as an iPad. And I haven't even haven't even looked at the sort of sort of accessibility options in in Android versus uh voiceover in ios or what have you right kind of interesting to take a look at but. right yeah i haven't looked at it either really i mean i know they have a lot more uh in previous versions of the os they've had a lot of um, user configurable options that are related to accessibility and just preferences mm -hmm. that you weren't allowed that you're not allowed or don't exist in ios um and you know obviously the android devices are way more customizable because you can buy all kinds of apps that replace the keyboard or uh, the background or whatever. Uh, sky's kind of the limit there. So you would think that you would have more options because it just generally has more options. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I'm jealous. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it? 200 bucks, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Amazon's Amazon's going to have to do something. Yeah, I mean, well, the Kindle Fire's two hundred, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's it appears to be a direct competitor to the Fire. Yeah, better better hardware, and you don't have the Amazon, you know, locked in. Mm. Yeah, that's true. The Amazon, the 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 Fire is perfect for what I like it for, which yeah. is accessing all my Amazon stuff. Right. Uh, but I have a ton of stuff in the google world too mostly more like business a calendar and and email and that kind of thing so um i gotta get one <laughs> <laughs> man i have like i don't know how many seven inch tablets does one person need yeah so i guess uh speaking of uh the zombie apocalypse of devices of all shapes and sizes um, I guess it's worth updating uh, about that that sort of bug fix that I was talking about. Um, last week, I think I mentioned the uh, sort of, we were talking about jamming too much JavaScript into a particular, you know, user experience and expecting, you know, just uh, like piling on libraries, expecting that to, you know, just sort of, create a user experience, the desired user experience without any kind of downside, you know? Yeah. But, uh, this is one of those cases where it's like, oh, we want, you know, just, just for an example, oh, we want drag and drop and we want carousels and we want uh, 
social media buttons and we want, you know, oh, okay, there's a library. Here's a library for that. Slap it in. Here's a library for that. Slap it in. Yeah. Just jam in all these libraries and then you throw in ad tracking and interstitial ads and, uh, sorry, analytics and interstitial ads and all this other stuff. And uh, before you know it, it's a, it's a pig. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so uh, I've been actually beating my head against, you know, trying to come up with a compromise between layering in all those libraries and, you know, starting from scratch. And I think today I finally, uh, finally cleared it up by, yeah, I cheated a little bit and cut out, I found one particular, um, include that seemed to be causing the problem. So I commented that out and it seems to have fixed things. Nice. Yeah. Omniture is like a, it's like a, uh, analytics, I think it's, uh, Adobe's analytics package. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it for some reason it was not playing nice with uh, with the uh, the app the web app and it was like a really bizarre uh, intermittent kind of network like problem like it was <clears throat> must have been trying to contact something and an Ajax recall call would fail and then everything would just hang and I don't know it's really hard to debug it was really hard to set up an environment to reproduce and you know if, you know. Fuck it. 10 20 hours later it's i literally added one line to you know a, a thousand lines of javascript it was like return true <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i hate bugs like that and i mean you you spend all this time tracking it down and it turns out to be like a one line fix and it's just oh you just you just feel so like such a loser <laughs> yeah well i mean the i totally I totally totally know what you mean for in this particular case i don't feel too bad because it's not my code yeah (laughs) (laughs) but wow it is like i'm like here's my version of the code works great here's another version of the code that has you know it's twice as big yeah and uh the problem's in that second piece there somewhere it's just so hard you know debugging somebody else's code and like i said it's got all of these all these it's including all this JavaScript from all over the internet. So to reproduce it in, you know, I had to deal with cross domain issues is just setting up the environment took forever. Yeah. There's, there's still no really good way to, to test any kind of testing. I guess there's a few testing frameworks and, and tools out there for JavaScript, but it feels like the, the sort of testing environments for JavaScript are just, they're, they're not, not as mature or, just just a, a lot more layers of complexity to them too, I guess. Yeah, actually, that's, that brings up a good point, which is that I'm using uh, iOS 6 on my phone and Safari 6, I think it is, on the computer, the, the beta versions of the OS and the beta version of uh, desktop Safari. And the debugging tools are drastically, drastically improved. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, it's like... It's, it takes a little getting used to because it's so different from the built-in WebKit debugging, but it's um, and it offers a lot of the same things. It doesn't offer some things like I, I've been going back and forth between the um, the uh, the Chrome developer tools and the new Safari developer tools for different you know for different things. Um, but it is I can't wait until everybody it's released. It's like a very very nice tool. It's almost like as sophisticated as. It feels almost as sophisticated as like instruments in Xcode, 
Oh, nice. It gives you all kinds of visibility into what's going on and, uh, you know, just stepwise debugging and um, lots of good stuff in the upcoming Safari release. And you just plug your phone into the computer and bang, you have, like, remote debugging on device, which is... No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's really, really nice to see Apple turning Safari into that you know, an, an actual instead of trying to trying to compete as as just another web browser, which you know obviously they still do. Mm-hmm. It's also nice to see them add in that that sort of debugging functionality there. Yeah, it's really yeah, nice. it's really nice. They they put a lot of effort into it too. The UI is very very polished. But uh, you know, I do still go back to Chrome for a lot of things. I mean, Chrome is my main browser, my main development environment, mm-hmm. and uh, I do all of my web development there. But when you do have to debug something that's like specific to a touch interaction or specific to the form factor of a phone it's this new safari stuff is great yeah um the night the thing that it that it lacks right now that uh, i love about chrome is that you can edit your files on the fly in chrome that's that's a huge one uh you know add in like you can just inspect the variables much more easily you can change code and it actually works uh in real time Mm-hmm. Um, what's the other thing? Oh, the other thing is that in Chrome you can beautify minified JavaScript so that you can, you know, you get something like uh, jQuery uh, min, right? And it's like one giant line. Right. Yeah. It's not very helpful to put a uh, a breakpoint on that one giant line. <laughs> yeah. But you can you just click on the beautify button and it breaks it into multiple lines, uh, like the unminified version. You can set breakpoints just like normal. Oh wow, I, d- I didn't know that. Yeah, it's that's huge. It's massive. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I found myself, you know, if you've ever, dear listener, uh, added a jillion console dot log functions into your code, um, you can stop now, because like if you if you if you can debug in Chrome, if you're in a situation where you can debug in Chrome and just beautify any minified JavaScript, set some breakpoints, and run the the script, and it'll stop, and you can inspect the variables at that point in the script, and then you can step through. It's, it's I mean, obviously, a stepwise debugger is is an important thing for any environment, but yeah, um, the the addition of the beautifier is just like a huge huge upgrade. Yeah, that's really nice. There's another thing that they can do that I. I haven't played with, but <laughs> there's some way in Chrome to uh, to use like a it's like a um, JavaScript comment that that will give you give the browser almost like a manifest of the JavaScript files involved. So if you so in an environment where you are basically packaging your JavaScript, like you have a build process and it takes all your you know you might have 20 JavaScript files it jams them all into one and it uh, minifies them you can add mm-hmm. a javascript comment that just kind of indicates where all the files came from and then right even even though you're loading the compiled one in the browser you can debug it as if they're still separate and oh wow yeah it's it's like magic so it, you know it's like uh it's it's for obviously it's for complex situations where you do have that kind of code but um it it's awesome because then you don't have to, you know, because if you're fixing the compiled code, then you have to go back and make those changes in the originals. And if, yeah, and you don't want to use the originals as, you know what I mean? There's like no way to really 
work on what you're right. testing in a compiled environment. So right, then you can just just edit the originals and then just recompile it, and, and you're good. Yeah. So and there's all I mean there's even more more stuff. All of the changes that you make are actually versioned, and you can save them out of the out of Chrome to the desktop, uh, so that you mm -hmm. can then take that and just paste it into your source code. Uh, so, like, if you're, if for example, with uh, CSS, I, a lot of times I'll just have a page open and I'll just be editing the CSS in the debug tools, not in the actual file. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's like, oh, I'm tweaking it by a pixel here and there, or I'm like changing the padding, or the the color's not quite right, anything like that. Um, and you can just save, you just hit save, and it creates a file on your desktop, and you can slap that into uh, your source and then reload the page. Nice. Yeah, usually when I'm when I'm doing stuff like that, usually I'll end up like I can I can edit it in in Sublime Text, which is my editor. Yep. And and then CodeKit will handle the the recompiling and auto reload. Yeah, that's cool too. So, but I mean if you have to I use I use that more for authoring, like when I'm authoring CSS or or JavaScript and I want to be able to to check it sort of as I write. But if you're going back and debugging, I can certainly see that you know it'd be a lot easier to just have it right there in the browser. Mm. Yep. I mean, both approaches, both approaches are good. The ability to, uh, for CSS, I think it's probably, you know, six of one, half dozen the other, but the, with the JavaScript yeah. being able to pause. Yeah. It the JavaScript definitely, I definitely see the benefit of doing the JavaScript right there in the browser. Yeah. But yeah, CSS, uh, you know, I don't know. It would, I guess I could, could get more on board with the CSS if, and if Chrome or what have you supported like using, um, just just editing less or yeah there's talk of that uh there's talk of 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 uh of both less sass and uh coffee script mm -hmm. as well so that yeah. developer tools you can uh i'm not exactly i don't use any of those things i understand what they are but i don't know what the i don't know how the if the intention is to change the dev tools so that they I guess it's to display the original coffee script, even though what's running is JavaScript, for example. Uh, so I think, I, and I, th I think that's the, I think that's the thing because if you are looking at the CSS, for example, you're not actually looking at, you're looking at the compiled output of, of the preprocessor, right? And but you don't want to edit that. So I guess it's the same. I guess it's the same, same concept as like yeah, the, yeah, same kind of deal concatenating javascript files so anyway so that's all that's all great it kind of follows on our ongoing theme for the last couple of weeks of like the the maturation of the uh tooling for web development particularly mobile yeah so that's always good yeah speaking of speaking of tools i i came across another sort of mobile prototyping tool this morning that kind of creates the um Sort of finished, finished mobile UI is similar to um, to Proto IO. Mm -hmm. What's it called? It's um, right now it only works in Chrome and Safari, so it does require a WebKit browser. It's um, uh, fluidui.com. Huh. That sounds familiar. Yeah, oh. I, I think it's pretty new. But I was playing around with their editor this morning, and it's pretty nice. I I don't know if it's quite. Well, I I can't say that it's. It's not as polished as Proto.io. I'm not sure I haven't explored it enough, but the, the editing environment is in some ways very different than Proto.io, so it has a, has a different sort of feel to it. Hmm. But you know, I, just, a, just a, quick, a quick run 
through with it. I I like it. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm loading it up now. It doesn't look familiar. I'm thinking there must be. I think there's an app called Fluid that I'm thinking of. Might be. Fluid mobile mockups. Cool. I have to check that out. I mean, I've been uh, I've been pretty happy with Proto.io. Or yeah. Uh, I I just wish I knew what to call it. <laughs> yeah. Proto.io. Uh, but anyway, that the and and they do. That's I think a single developer that's doing Proto and it's uh he he's really responsive and does lots of releases and, and upgrades it regularly so oh cool i am kind of prone to um i'm, I'm kind of attracted to that yeah but yeah i tell you my my main thing is and you know for for anyone out there building a mobile prototyping tool um proto io and then fluid ui they both start at like 25 30 dollars a month I want something that's like a $9 plan that just, the you know, if it lets me have one project, that's fine. Of course, Proto has a, a free plan that lets you have one project, but they limit you to five screens. Mm. I'd, I'd be perfectly happy with, with one project and an unlimited number of screens on like a like a 9 or $12 plan. Mm. That's the cutoff for you. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's, you know, it's rare that I'm going to have three at a time often enough to justify 25 bucks a month. Yeah, yeah. This one's like uh, for three projects. Fluids, uh, twenty nine dollars a month. That's, yeah, that's no yeah, joke. It's a little more, a little more pricey. But they also have a free plan that um, you know, lets you do one project. Cool. So yeah, I'm not. A... I'm not sure if they impose any other kind of restrictions on the free plan or not. Mm. Yeah, well, worth checking out. I'll, I'll yeah give it a look. Like I said, I've been happy with Proto, but. Uh... It's good to know what's out there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't been dissatisfied with Proto at all. I just came across it and thought it was a, an interesting take, interesting alternative. Mm. That reminded me of uh, the other, the sort of wireframing tool we used, uh, Mockingbird, which uh, had, had its pros and cons, um, but ultimately I'm fairly happy with it. Uh, but there's another one that you came across called, what was it, Mockup, M-O-Q? Yeah. And it's it actually looked like a note-for-note ripoff of... Yeah, um, almost entirely. Yeah. Uh, but the difference being that that it's it says it's SVG-based, which seems crazy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems like you would run into some performance issues there, but it seems to do seems to do fairly well. Yeah, it's it's says uh, HTML5 app for creating high fidelity resolution independent SVG mockups and wireframes. So mm, something to look into. Haven't uh... yeah, I was looking at it and I can't remember. It seems like there were a couple of things that it did that I liked better than Mockingbird and then a couple of other areas where it wasn't quite as, as mature or, or handled things. Uh, it was related to linking pages, and I can't remember if it was better or worse, but it was, you know, there were, there were, there were some aspects that I liked that it seemed like it had more functionality and then other areas where it seemed like there was a little less. Right. So, you know, there's kind of some trade-offs on, you know, both ways. Yeah, the... the... The, I poked around a little bit too, and agree with you. The linking, uh, the linking is a problem. the The way that the linking is done in mockup uh, is not 
not as good as uh, in Mockingbird. It yeah, is is, is Mockingbird still in beta? I feel like it might be. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I feel like maybe the linking just isn't quite done yet. Yeah, it does have a feeling like it's... I mean, it's very polished. It's very professional-looking. Uh, but I think there is just some features that aren't baked yet. Um, it's But the, the main thing that I do like about it is that the... Um, the interface itself, not the not the output of it, but the interface itself is much more responsive and doesn't have any redraw errors. Mm-hmm. Um, Mockingbird, I had all. It seemed like it took a really long time to load, and it would. I had all kinds of rendering errors when we got into like a lot of screens. You know, if you're trying to scroll the screens up and down, it wouldn't redraw, so you'd have to like. Uh, you had to kind of kick it to to for it to display the names of the screens and that became a problem for a whole bunch of reasons um but the the other thing about it that um about mockingbird that really bummed me out and i'm not sure if mock-up's going to solve this or not uh, is that once you linked everything together you couldn't export it in a way that preserved those links yeah which is it's, it's like a, a, a shame because a PDF can do that. So, and it does export PDFs. It just doesn't respect the linking. Yeah, yeah, and that that almost kind of defeats the whole purpose of adding the links, because quite often when you're sharing with a client, it is easier and better just to to send them that PDF and not being able to preserve the links in the PDF is just a real bummer. Right, and and there are, and, and I can give you a couple of reasons why it's so. So the concept is that. I think what they're thinking is that, oh, well, we'll just leave it up, like leave the the wireframe up and the client can just refer to that, but, uh, you know, and click through it in there. Uh, But that's number one. That means that, you know, I would have to keep. So in the example that we're working on now, I would have to keep that that project up forever. Right. I mean, like, like at what point do I how do I hand it over to the the non-technical client? He's not going to create a, a Mockingbird account, and like, yeah. And even if there's a way for me to transfer it to another account, I'm not sure if there is. And uh, the other thing is, um, there's a patent process uh, related to the wireframes, and I'm not. You, you have to submit a document. So um, I wanted to. Ha- it needs to be. You know, the user interface needs to be clickable. It needs to be descriptive of the workflows. So he had to have some kind of offline um, document that would reflect that. Right. And PDFs do this, you know. So I wonder if it's just a question of the Mockingbird uh, people being like, oh, well, if we, you know, if we export clickable PDFs, there's no reason to keep the project up. And the way that they bill is by number of projects. So. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, not sure what the motivation behind that is, if it's technical or, or financially driven. Yeah. So, you know, if you're listening, <laughs> Mockingbird <laughs> people, it would be great if those PDFs were exportable with the links. Because what I ended up doing was exporting, you know, 102 screen grabs, you know, PNG files. Yeah. And then importing them all into one by one into Keynote and you know, once we were finally sure that this was the way the navigation was going to work, then, you know, I manually linked everything in Keynote, which took at least, I've done it twice now, and it probably took a total of, you know, eight to ten hours. Yeah. It's like so frustrating. Yeah, because there's just, there's just so much in there. Yeah. 
and then you're like, well, did I do it right? You know, I know this is the PDF is not the thing that we tested. We tested the, the live prototype. Right. So anyway, so more and more tools, wireframes and uh, and prototyping tools. So we will keep on trying different ones and and look for the best. But I do I I have been thinking about it for a while, like the difference between a wireframe and a prototype or mock up and whether or not we should just blow off the wireframes and just do prototypes mm-hmm. uh, or the, the difference between the two. And I, and you know, no surprise. I think that, that we will continue to do both in different situations and that the, the advantages of one over the other are s- significant depending on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are some instances where I, I feel like we probably maybe don't need a wireframe and can just jump straight to, to a, a prototype, mm-hmm. but then you get to get into other situations like this. This project you, you we're talking about, we have 102 screens. We had a lot of the workflow had to be sorted out and worked out as we did the the wireframes. We didn't have for a lot of it going in. We didn't have a clear definition of of how that you know how that process of using the application would work. And that was, I feel like that was so much easier to do in a, in a wireframing environment than it would be in a, a more refined prototype. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it was very, it was very much um, a sort of uh, R&D kind of approach. We were like, we, we know what we want the app to do, and there's going to need to be a series of screens that different types of users go through to accomplish these tasks but we don't really know what those workflows are going to be. Yeah, like what's the what's the best way to, to accomplish that now? Yeah, so you're right. And, and having doing that in like uh, a prototyping tool like Proto is would have involved a lot of like animations and, and not pixel perfect, but a lot more attention to color and size and shape. And, uh, and with the wireframes, it was just like slap a bunch of stuff in there and and go yeah. to town. And- yeah, I mean, there were, and the wireframes went through several revision processes of revising the wireframes too and refining those. And I mean, initially on some screens, it was just, you know, okay, don't worry about placement. It's just these are the things we need to have on the screen. Mm-hmm. Right. And then as we went through and refined, we, we sort of, you know, dealt with the, the actual layout of the screen a little more. But it started out just getting the elements that we knew we had to have on there. Yeah, and so what's interesting is um, the taking taking that now uh, we're in the prototyping phase, but we're not using a prototyping tool. I'm actually building a front end with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, mm-hmm. and the so we're we're so it's not. I guess the term really is is the term for what Proto creates really is. I don't know if prototypes really the, the right. It's like an interactive mock-up with animation. It doesn't. Yeah, actually... it's a it's a high fidelity interactive mock-up. Right, and it, it's even though we tend to refer to that as a prototype, it's it's probably really not appropriate to call it that. And and that's what the it, you know that it's interesting when I think about how long it took me to do a similar size prototype for interactive mock-up in Mockingbird and. Uh, Sorry, in uh, Proto and and now making just coding a prototype um, mm-hmm. because you know you've got 
you don't have debugging with Proto. You don't have to debug anything. You just like make a screen and define all of the little constants. But it's a lot of like typing into fields and nudging things around the screen with your your arrow keys and dragging things around with the mouse. It's like a WYSIWYG, um, a WYSIWYG layout designer. Yeah. And that's not my favorite way to work, but it does have its benefits, um, of course. But doing this prototype where we're going straight from wireframes to working code, um, you have the 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 possible you know, you have the ability to change a little bit of CSS and affect all 100 screens. Yeah, which yeah. is not the case with the screen by screen by screen WYSIWYG editor. So as we go, you know, I'm only like you know one screen into it so far, starting with like the, <laughs> the key screens, the hardest ones. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's, but it's but it's a much more. Um, my prediction is that it's going to be a little bit more time consuming. Well, it it's going to be more time consuming than creating a a, a proto prototype, but it's going to be a working thing at the end. Yeah, the end result a little more time consuming, but the end result is a lot more functional code that you can you can you can use you just yeah. just write your your javascript for the api calls at that point right right so it's interesting to see that there are certain things that are easier and certain things that are harder about going straight from wireframes to live code so mm. i mean i suppose that's obvious but uh um i don't know it's just interesting so that the the project with just the prototype tool proto it, it, we didn't do wireframes we just did the prototype where yeah. this one, I wouldn't have jumped. I wouldn't have jumped straight into code. That would have been crazy. Yeah. Uh, but since we have the wireframes, I'm pretty comfortable jumping straight to code. So it's uh, hopefully that won't blow up in my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think you know. I, th I think you can you can going from from wireframe to code. I think in a lot of cases probably fine, and in a lot of cases probably what most people do. Yeah. But yeah. It's 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 interesting. It's sort of. The, the mental shift there between working from the wireframes and then working from the more refined sort of mock-up mm. in, in Proto. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like two different workflows. So, it, and it depends, I think, depends on the original project spec. Like, I wouldn't say that in the future any, any gig that comes in, like, oh, well, first we're going to wireframe and then we're going to do, a, you know, a, a high-fidelity mock-up and then we're going to build code you know a working prototype with code um the two the two projects had sort of a different they started in a different place mentally for both clients and i think the process that we used for each you know is, is still the way i would do it yeah it was different they kind of started in a different place in terms of the the sort of workflow that the client envisioned and also i feel like the clients themselves kind of had different backgrounds there that may have may have sort of lent themselves better to being more more receptive to to one or the other yeah absolutely so it's actually leads on it uh leads on from that to say that uh when i started jumping into the code uh the the functional prototype the html css and javascript the first thing that i uh tackled mentally was how was i going to structure the html templates mm -hmm. or the templates and, and I, you know, I'm like, it, it's a little bit difficult to, to talk about this without a visual, but, um, but 
the case that we were, the situation that we were in, I was like, I think I'm going to use tables for the layout, <laughs> like HTML table. Oh, type. that's the that's the one you were talking about. I thought you were talking about the um, the the calendar type application. No, I would definitely use tables on the calendar. But that's yeah. I, I saw your tweet about using tables, and I was I was surprised you didn't didn't get attacked by nearly as many people as I expected you to be attacked by. I know. I had a, I, it was almost like it was almost like you know sixty forty. People yeah. saying, people saying like you know, blasphemer on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, you know, I think the, I think the canonical quote was, oh, you know, it's never killed anyone before. Yeah. <laughs> so what what's interesting? Um, by the way, I think we should start a drinking game. Every time I say interesting, and just take a, you should drink. Take a shot. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a and we've got a couple of those. We should. No, we, I think we should just call it interesting or what have you. <laughs> or what have you? Because <laughs> I do that one a lot. Yeah, yeah. Should, yeah, there should definitely be a niche podcast drinking. Yeah. But I digress. Um, so looking at this at this particular screen, I was going to start with. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with a screen. We basically imagine, you know, you've got a header that is 100% width, you got a footer, it's 100% width, and you've got two equal height columns in the center. Really, really easy to do with a table. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not going to use a table for layout. I mean, that's just so 1995, you know. Blasphemy. Yeah, St. Zeldman told us not to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I... I I had this internal debate about, I can't, I can't do that, you know, like how... So then I thought, all right, well, what am I going to do? And knowing that the application is going to be very memory intensive, there's going to be a lot of JavaScript, there's going to be a lot of CSS, the idea of, of slapping in a framework to, you know, do a two-column, you know, to, I mean, I know that there are CSS frameworks in JavaScript that you can do to, that people use to create these kinds of layouts, and I, you know, I research Flexbox and where that's at in terms of implementation with WebKit and blah, 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 blah. Four hours later, I was like, I'm going to use a table. Like, why am I even thinking about this? So I, I plowed into it like that. I, I put the table tags in there and, uh, and did immediately have all kinds of wacky CSS annoyances that, <laughs> you know, cause I haven't, I haven't, tried to manipulate tables with CSS, you know, in, in a meaningful way in a long time. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is annoying. You yeah, know? yeah, you got to remember how to do it. Every time I work with tables for something other than presenting data, which is, is not often, but every time I do, I have to, have to remember how to do it. Right. And, and so I, I might actually not use them after all because it is annoying. And yeah. I, I almost don't want to remember. Um, that said, it was immediately apparent to me that back in the day when we were like nesting tables to create more complex layouts, we were also doing a bunch of other things wrong, like inline styles and and presentational tags. We were doing mm -hmm. a whole bunch of things wrong. It wasn't just nested tables. Yeah. And uh, inline JavaScript, and it was a mess. And even if even if I do decide to stay with the tables, obviously I'm still going to use unobtrusive JavaScript and progressive enhancement and and you know all of the sort of other modern techniques that that came along in that same time period, and it really makes the table piece of it a lot less offensive 
um, when you're not like first of all I'm not nesting tables it's just one table yeah uh, and the other th and the, the second thing is that the styles are all you know abstracted out into an external CSS file and the JavaScript is not embedded in there either so it's yeah really... when, when you're doing everything else right it's not such a big deal and if you don't overcomplicate it then the table markup doesn't get as unwieldy right yeah that's basically it and I mean what I want what I want is uh, a V box and an H box the way that the way that they work in Flex or the way that they worked in Zool, which I mean you gotta be a geek to know what Zool is, but it's the it's the underlying presentation engine in Firefox. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's exactly what what I want. Um, and tables are the closest thing to it in the sort of HTML world. And so I got to thinking about it and and it came down to this uh, probably a debate that's raged you know for, for years about whether or not html should be presentational right because mm -hmm. in a way because it, it i i think of it, it the way i think of it is not so uh you know it's it's presentational in the sense that you know an h1 is going to by default display larger and be a block level element um but and and that's presentational right i mean the, the fact that there yeah. are block and inline elements is presentational so i was like well why really is it bad to say that um you know that that these two regions these two you know call them inline block these two columns why is it why is it so bad to have a column essentially and why should that be in the CSS, which is where that's what I'm getting at. It's, it seems like the direction is that everybody's trying to push columns into CSS. And to me, that doesn't really make sense on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, as a sort of responsive design um, adherent, I, mm -hmm. s I see that that is a bad, it, it's a bad place to push columns. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how that works out. There's kind of kind of a double standard there. But at the same time, we're talking about... Um, you know, we're talking about we're going to have an API on the back end that's going to have all of that data available in whatever form we want to manipulate it into. So why can't the client have some markup in it that's purely presentational at that point? You know, isn't isn't that the job of, of the markup? Right. And it gets into the debate of should your should your. Um uh customization or should your responsiveness happen on the client side or on the server side yeah so you know for for example we could say that we do you know you know i would be struck with lightning when i say this but uh, we could do device detection or user agent sniffing on the server side and send back different templates and and or you know you can go sort of pure responsive design and use media queries uh, to to use CSS to transform the layout, and while I th I think that the 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 pure responsive uh, approach is better for say a website, uh, I don't really see the advantage with what is truly an app. Yeah, um, it's a web at way way uh, you know if there's a spectrum between web apps and websites, we are this particular one is way way over on the app side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's not like you're going to be remixing it or linking to one of these columns. You're, it doesn't even make sense. It's, right. It's it's not going to exist outside of the scope of the the devices. You're, and in this case, that's mostly going to be iPads. iPad, 
right. and and maybe some other some other tablets, but it's not really going to exist outside of the context of of that environment. Exactly, and and so, you know, I guess the. I guess the realization is that those sorts of things still exist where as much as I, as much as, well, both of us are, are very, you know, building apps that run everywhere. This particular uh, interface to this application is not going to run everywhere. This interface is going to run on an iPad. Right. Right. To, to me, to me, the goal is to, I guess, have the data purity, the purity of purity and accessibility of the data. And then if you want to do something that's, do something with that data that's kind of in a like a restricted or sandboxed environment, you know, go for it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is one of those cases where I would consider actually writing the front end as a native app and just communicating with the API. Mm -hmm. uh, except that I'm reasonably confident that it's going to, it's going to, this user interface will also need to run on other platforms you know say that are of a similar device bucket so right. so by changing a couple of small things it could run on a laptop computer uh you know with different kind of camera it needs camera access that's the thing so it could run on a laptop using um like a flash using the flash plugin and the same exact html templates could work on a tablet because this the size is close enough that the layout just makes would still make sense. Once you get down to like a seven inch tablet, tablet like we were talking about before, it the the designs don't really work. No, you you'd need a different different interface. Yeah, you need more real estate. Maybe maybe it would work on a seven inch, but I don't think so. But look, once you get down to a phone it, style interface for this, and this is a lot of this is specific to this application. But that's that's important because whenever anybody's doing development, it's specific to an application yeah. or different constraints. So in this specific case, our like our wireframes wouldn't even are totally inappropriate for like a phone format. And in fact, yeah. this application doesn't even make sense on a phone. No, no, and it would it would be really crowded on a seven inch tablet. Yeah, the, the seven inch tablet's pushing it, and a phone is ridiculous. Yeah. So the concept of and even though I'm like a pure mobile first person, it's this doesn't this app just doesn't make a ton of sense on mobile in this incarnation. There'll be pieces of it that you can use a phone to interact with, but the piece that we're building right now is like a different app. So if you think like Facebook is is the, the Facebook mobile app, they're spinning off all of these sub applications. So it's breaking into a lot of little ones like the the Facebook camera and the Facebook Messenger. These are becoming like single purpose applications that talk to Facebook in the cloud and do their specific yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, because there, there, are, there are some bits and pieces of this application that, that it does make sense that you could, could potentially use on the phone. But the, the larger application as a whole, there's just, you know, no, no way. It's, it's given the use cases, it's, it's not at all reasonable right yeah so it's i mean i've been kind of wrestling with it though because i'm uh i mean we we sort of i think two weeks ago talked about a process for for projects that has been the case and i you know we're kind of violating a couple of the big ones with this project so it's been kind of in the back of my mind and 
and I think it does boil down to you know when you're working on something it's it, you've got a specific client with specific expectations and you can push them in a direction uh, but sometimes sometimes and sometimes they might just not see the big picture and you can't convince them that you know they need to do mobile first let's say uh, mm-hmm. or or it's a situation where the 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 usage scenario for the application just doesn't only make sense in certain contexts and it yeah. can't, can't really exist in the other contexts. Yeah, apps apps that run everywhere are great and, and they're ideal, but for some types of applications, it, it's just not going to happen because, um, you know, no one's, you know, it's not, you know, like you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want to run an IDE on your phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to. Well, yeah. But, I, you know, how to make Probably that Probably the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Code over SMS. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like Happy Docs, for example. It's, right. To squeeze that down to a small screen and still make it, uh, make the, like the JSON return formats legible, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Your your best bet is to export as PDF. Yeah, it's just too much. There's, you know, the content, you can't break the content into smaller chunks and, and have it still retain its meaning. So you just need more real estate to read it. Um, and that's kind of the situation here. I mean, we're talking about a lot of a lot of uh, audio video interaction. You wouldn't wouldn't bake it into a card dashboard because that's it's just not appropriate. Yeah. You record a video on your phone or take a picture with your phone and that works fine. But if you get into situations where you need to see multiple videos, multiple pictures, or what have you on the screen at once, you're not going to want to do that on on a device that small. Yeah. So, yeah. Going mobile first in this would have made no sense. Yeah. Like that that client I had a while back that I built their entire web app and the whole time they told me it was great and and then get, you know, the project's done and and all of a sudden, oh, it's not working. It's like, <clears throat> like what it's you know it turns out that like ie 5.5 for mac <laughs> like of course it doesn't work for this device no one would ever yeah 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 you're like isn't the whole internet broken for you yeah exactly Does yeah, anything no. work? just this site what about the rest of the internet yeah have you have you gone to amazon lately <laughs> what's that look like so well live and learn and i i have noticed that um these kind of these kind of uh, issues, if you will, like these r- things I wrestle with in my brain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as we're trying to, you know, because the big picture, like your, your moral conflicts. Yeah, exactly. Like the the big picture here is that is that I, personally, I want things to be more interoperable and I want things to be more open and run in more places and be accessible mm-hmm. on, you know, wherever wherever possible, wherever it makes most sense. Um. But the flip side of that is sometimes clients happen, you know, and and <laughs> and they they've got specific you know goals and requests, and if if that doesn't fit with my picture of the universe, it's it's either like don't take the project or um, do do it more or less the way they want. Yeah. And there's and and you know we've got a couple of cases where there are good reasons to take the project because it's a great project, you know, and, and something that is a make the world a better place type of thing. That said, when we do our own projects, it seems like there, um, we never, never have any of these issues because it's almost like the, the, the application is predicated on the notion that it's going to run everywhere. So we wouldn't have thought of an application like 
this client project because it really can run everywhere. So yeah, it's just less interesting. Yeah, like the exception to that, I guess, being Happy Docs. Yes. Yeah. And I, it's, that it does bug me too. I wish there was a way that we could make make it useful, but it's the 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 without seeing the zoomed out kind of context, it's really hard to imagine how that would be. Yeah, there's there's so much there as far as relationships between between routes and um, editing JSON on a phone. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So once we once once Siri understands the JSON and we can just say it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess authoring on a phone maybe has gotten a little easier with the integration of the query tool because now you can if you have an API that you can query directly, you can use that to generate your your JSON. Oh, does that work? Uh, yeah. Nice. I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, you. That's that's been there for a while. Cool beans. If you have a if you have a live API, you can query it with the query tool and then build your your resource documentation off of the results of that. So that's super cool. the the obvious The obvious question is that's a little chicken or egg because yeah, <laughs> yeah. At at that point, it's at that point you're documenting an existing API, so it's like, you know, you kind of kind of feel like you should get a lecture. Or why haven't you documented it first? <laughs> Right. But, yeah. you know, that's, but once you do, well, so if you already have an existing API, of course, it's yeah. extremely useful. And the, uh, and the flip side of it is a, a lot of times, and recently this has been happening because we've been moving from design into the development on several uh, API mm -hmm. projects. Um, the, the, what you thought you were going to build when you did the design is close, but once you start interacting with the front end designer and their requests are a little bit different than you expected. Yeah. And once you, once you actually get things into the database and start writing those queries to, to pull out data. Right. You're like, Ooh, this is, this, this makes sense that we would have a query like this, but it's going to brutalize the database. So, yeah, or whatever. So the, the, it's kind of like a happy docs are kind of like living documents of an API. So once, yeah. once you create the first one, okay, great. Then you go build the API and things change a little bit. Being able to directly import the, um, the JSON response from the live API would be killer or yeah. is, I mean, that's great. Yeah. And actually, did you see my note the other day? I want to, I want to add some kind of status indicator where you can indicate, uh, progress. Mm, yeah, well, I did see that note. What I feel like that would be really handy. Either either denote like the, the progress of the documentation or, or the development or, or maybe even both. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, because I'll, I'll quite often go in and I'll, I'll start writing documentation for a resource. And I won't be able to finish it entirely because it'll rely on something else. Mm -hmm. So like if I could just somehow note, okay, and, and I do the same thing when I'm developing. I'll develop bits and pieces and then I'll get to a part that relies on something else and I'll have to go to it and, and what have you. So if I could just denote that like, okay, this, this particular group of resources is 75% complete or there's a documentation here, you know, we're showing incomplete documentation on these resources. Mm. And yeah, I feel like that would be just a handy, handy tool to have. Yeah, I agree that, I mean, right now you can, you can specify that a particular resource is in draft mode. Yeah. Um, it would be, it might be kind of cool at the top to indicate like a percentage complete based on how many things are draft and how many things are not. Um, yeah. But I do, I do, 
I, I like, I like that idea. The other thing that, that I noticed on that sort of same, uh, that same sort of topic where you've got more than one person in the same uh, API documentation and you're trying to, you're kind of like, it's not collaborative authoring, but like, like a lot of times you'll be writing stuff and then I'll be reviewing it. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's easier for me to just change stuff than it is to, you know, give you a to do like I'll try and explain you know this you know complex thing out of context so I'll just change it but what would be cool is for like you log in and it says something like oh there have been updates since by someone else since the yeah. last time you logged in yeah or, I, w I would like to do sort of an activity log and then uh maybe either some like maybe some some basic versioning mm-hmm yeah. So I feel I feel like those I feel like those three things, activity log, versioning, and some kind of progress indicator. Hmm. Interesting. Drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. More coffee. I know my neck's already getting. I'm like all tense already. <laughs> oh, twitch, twitch, twitch. Just switch over to water or lunch or something soon. Yeah. So that's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye bye. What have you? <laughs> <That's right.